Hello again, this is Pastor Ed Collins at North Christian Church. This is part 79 of The Lord is Our Confidence. Let's open up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of sitting down this way and just taking in your word and being filled up, overflowing even with truth that sets us free, Father. What a grand blessing this is in time, Father. We don't deserve it. We certainly have not earned it, but we're ever so grateful for it, Father. We give thanks for it always. We rejoice always. And we know these things in of themselves are pleasing to you, Father. We can't fail with you. We can't fail by grace. We're just so grateful for all that you are in our lives, Father. We do pray for those in our congregation and even abroad that are ill and that turn to you with earnestness, Father. We ask that you comfort them now, that you use that as an opportunity to glorify yourself in time. Father, we pray also for those that are still lost in this world without hope, that they also be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a time like this a time to rejoice, Father. What an incredible blessing this is. We do just ask for your blessings on this message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 79 of the Lord is our confidence. On Sunday, the Spirit gave us a friendly reminder about seasons. And he began to generalize the notion to include life itself. And so he used Christmas and Resurrection Sunday as proof points for this topic of seasons and considering seasons and how they're laid out and depicted in the Word of God. And then he generalized it for us to include the grander stage, which is life itself not just certain uh, oversights in terms of celebrations and holidays and such, but pretty much that life is filled with moments all strung together in such a way that certain patterns begin to form in our lives. We have to keep an eye on these patterns, that's the point. Certain routines even might take shape year over year. And while we tend to like routine, like most things in this life, there's a danger to it if we become complacent. As the Spirit's been teaching us for years now, the life God has given us at salvation, we call it eternal life. And it's transcendent. It's transcendent. And it transcends, obviously, even routines or seasons in life. Sanctification includes being able to see it all as truth, have that big picture, transcendent viewpoint that God has. And so sanctification, as we've been learning, includes this viewpoint. Some call it divine viewpoint. That's fine, because that's what it is. 
God's viewpoint, as long as you understand what the Spirit's been trying to convey to us in this series, that sanctification includes being able to see it all as truth. Here's the passage we derived that saying from up on the board, Ephesians 5, 13 to 14. I'll give you the amplified classic. But when anything is exposed and reproved by the light, it is made visible and clear. I like to think of that as, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just show me the truth, Lord. When anything is exposed and reproved by the light, it is made visible and clear. And where everything is visible and clear, there is light. Or as other translations say, there is truth. So it doesn't matter what it is that we're seeing. We just want clarity. And that's the value of studying the Word of God. This, quote, seeing it all as truth, a phrase that has been coming from this pulpit, by the way, for close to 10 years now, I imagine. This seeing it all as truth is a key element to being set free. Think about it. Without spiritual sight, as Jesus would call it, we are blind to the truth and quite easily led astray, even as believers. So we continue to do what we do, learning the word and preaching it, as Paul would say, in season and out of season, when it's popular, when it's not popular. This is the reason why the Spirit gave us the earthly backdrop that Solomon wrote about in Ecclesiastes. And so we compared Solomon's wisdom with Paul's wisdom and even Jesus's wisdom. So last time the Spirit gave us this what we'll call earthly backdrop that Solomon wrote about in Ecclesiastes. Recall that the book of Ecclesiastes is essentially a list of experiments that Solomon tried out, let's say, during his lifetime that essentially exhausted the options for happiness that the world clings to. In other words, he got involved. He invested in the world's economy. Very dangerous, as we've been noting. But that's the book of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. He did all these things, and at the end of the day, he realized it was all vanity. It was all for naught. So he tried all these things, all these earthly-minded things, and these are the things that the world clings to, and he figured it out and the Spirit authored uh, his book, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, to capture it so that we can learn from it thousands of years later. I encourage you, by the way, uh, each of you to take the time to read this tremendous treasure trove of wisdom when you get the chance, the book of Ecclesiastes. What you'll find is a man's wisdom after spending a lot of time trying to be satisfied with life outside of God's grace. That's the theme. A man's wisdom after spending a lot of time, a lot of, you might call it wasted time, but we all go through it to learn, to stretch, to be stretched, to be corrected. But the book of Ecclesiastes really is a book about a man's wisdom after spending a lot of time trying to be satisfied with life outside of God's grace. 
up here on the board, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's wisdom is on full display for all to learn from. The key lesson is that life apart from God is an exercise in futility. That's the key lesson in the book of Ecclesiastes. Life apart from God is an exercise in futility. That's what Solomon wrote. All the promises of the, quote, good life in this world are vain attempts at arrogance seeking self-righteousness, self-confidence, and self-esteem. The great gift from God the Holy Spirit here is that he had Solomon write down his experiences in the form of results. That's the gift. We don't fully know what Solomon's experiments looked like, at least not fully, but we've been given the important part. So go to Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, and I like that he opened up this way. Uh, he opened up with his conclusion, and then he went on throughout the rest of the book to substantiate his conclusion. Again, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. And the gift here from the Holy Spirit is that Solomon wrote down the results of his experiments, his experiences. Ecclesiastes 1, 2. And what, what did he have to say? Right out of the gate. Second verse, first, first chapter. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all vanity. In other words, he's throwing his arms up. This proclamation from one of the wisest men in history cannot and should not be overlooked or simply just read over. From the outset of this incredible book of wisdom, Solomon cuts to the chase. It's as if he, just picture this, I'm doing it right now, it's as, it's as if he waved his hand over the earth and denounced its earthly blessings as utterly feeble. All vanity. Just imagine him sort of figuratively waving his hand, saying, you see all this? I've been there. I've done that. I've experimented in every which way. And it's all vanity. That figurative scene reminds me of the scene atop the high mountain with Satan and Jesus. Hold your thumb there in Ecclesiastes. Go to Matthew 4, verse 8. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. I just want to show you an actual literal or a, 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 a literal versus a figurative waving of the arm, if you would, on uh, over all things earthly. Matthew 4 verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you. Can you... Can you imagine the arm going out again, extended out and sweeping across the landscape from atop a mountain? All these I will give to you. Well, what was under his arm? Earth. All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. In other words, will you partake in my economy where I am the ruler, of course, but all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Whenever I read the phrase, all these I will give to you, I imagine Satan waving his arm over the landscape and making a sweeping promise that earthly things, the things under his arm, 
the things in full view are the source of blessing. All these things I will give to you. He waves his arm over the earth as, and he's supposing and tempting Jesus with a blessing. Many years earlier, it was Solomon who, through his wisdom, wrote a similar sentiment. Only when Solomon figuratively waved his hand over the earth, he said, all these things you see, it's all vanity. Very different story. Now go back to where your thumb is, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. So that's a nice backdrop. That's a nice contrast to uh, really cement what Solomon was saying in Ecclesiastes verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Again, the key principle on the board in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's wisdom is on full display for all to learn from. The key lesson is that a life apart from God is an exercise in futility. All the promises of the, quote, good life in this world are vain. Attempts at arrogance, seeking self-righteousness, self-confidence, and self-esteem. If that's the overarching theme, then, in this wisdom book, then we have to take it with us throughout our journey with Solomon. In other words, we cannot forget the ever-important context, the context of the book itself, which is the point on the board, that life apart from God is an exercise in futility. That context, even though it was in verse 2, of chapter 1 is what sets the stage for the rest of the book. And as he goes through all these experiments, this is the theme that sort of holds it and binds the thought, his thoughts and his wisdom together. With that said, let's review what the Spirit gave us on Sunday. Go forward to Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1 reads, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. Here's some insight on that phrase, for everything there is a season. On the board, the Bible teaches us to think about life from God's perspective. That is that he is in control, implying we are not. God already knows the end from the beginning. What will be, will be. Again, verse 1 of chapter 3. For everything there is uh, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to sweep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Again, the point on the board from last time, for everything there is a season, the Bible teaches us, to think about life from God's perspective. That's that big picture perspective the Spirit's been giving us, right? That is that he is in control, implying that we are not. God already knows the end from the beginning. What will be, 
will be. Now, if we step back and synthesize what the Spirit just pointed out as the theme, first of all, the theme in Solomon's writing, with this point on the board, something in chapter 3, what we rightly conclude is that we must maintain a transcendent viewpoint of life itself. That's what we're getting in this wisdom book. Solomon says, it's all vanity. Keep that viewpoint because that's God's viewpoint. God doesn't operate under the sweeping arm of Satan. He operates above it. You see the visual? What we rightly conclude is that we must maintain a transcendent viewpoint of life itself always. Up here on the board, Colossians 3.2 which is why Paul wrote, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We want that big picture, godly, divine perspective. If we truly understand the context of what Solomon wrote about in his great wisdom book of Ecclesiastes, we conclude that seeing it all as truth includes seeing the world as it is. Just plain vanilla. Just see it as it is. It is what it is. We're not of it, but we're in it. And so if we look at the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, we conclude that in this case, seeing it all as truth includes seeing the world as it is. Furthermore, seeing life itself as it is. We have a choice to view it from upon the earth, where it's extremely difficult to discern the big picture. It's easy to get lost if a mind is on things that are on earth, a la Colossians 3.2. That's the danger. We lose that perspective. So again, we're, we're given this choice, though, to view things from upon the earth, to view life from an earthly lens or through an earthly lens, from an earthly perspective, where it's extremely difficult to discern the big picture and keep our bearings without becoming terribly weary. Or, the other choice, we can choose to keep taking in the Word of God and being totally blessed with divine viewpoint, transcendent viewpoint. That is, we can begin to see things the way God sees them, the way He considers the goings-on in our lives. That becomes our source of power. Don't miss it. That perspective from the Word of God, that becomes our source of power. It becomes the very foundation of our sanctification and our confidence to overcome the temptations the way Jesus so perfectly did in Matthew 4 with Satan's sweeping arm. In fact, the more we learn and are sanctified, the more repulsive the promises from the world become. They never stop. Of course not. It's not like the demons rest. They're never going to stop until the, the day we die, until we're in heaven. But the more we learn and are sanctified, the more repulsive these promises from the world become. I was reflecting on this, and I encourage you to do so. I'll share a sentiment from my own life now. And I hope it helps. And I'm laughing because uh, 
don't get mad at me, but yes, this includes my television again. <laughs> uh, or shall I say the lack of a TV in my living room. When I had a TV, it was a constant irritation because just about every TV show was either overtly or covertly making promises to my soul. Like, if you don't see it yet, again, when I had a TV, the, the irritation was is the TV shows were either overtly or covertly making promises to my soul. Like, see it? If your life was like this, you'd be enjoying life even more. Don't you wish you had this life, like this family in this TV show or this person in this TV show, something like that. That's a sales pitch. That's making promises to my soul. If your life was like his life, you'd be enjoying life even more, Ed. And the commercials were often worse in many regards because they were forced to make a really sharp, pointed attempt at inserting these unholy promises into my soul in under 30 seconds of airtime. They're really sharp. So my TV became like an, an electronic version of a syringe that I really didn't want anything to do with. And it repulsed me every time I turned it on. So I got rid of it. Why did it irritate my soul so much though? Why? That's the fair question. Simple. Because, and I'm not saying I'm some great spiritual warrior, but it's true I am at this stage of my life I'm able to see it all as truth. And like Solomon, I see right past all the empty promises and the so-called, quote, blessings this world offers. TV and media just tend to be the kingdom of darkness's go-to source of proclaiming said promises. And so I just decided to distance myself and my family from that thing. Having that kind of instant insight into the futility of earthly promises means that any one of us has the ability to not only recognize the folly of it all, but we have the God-given power to dismiss it before it adversely affects us at all. And we can be fully confident that this strategy will never fail. Remember Isaiah 55, 11? God's word never returns empty-handed. So if you take in the word of God and you begin to see it all as truth, that never returns empty-handed. It gives us power to deflect temptations, to stay out of the pit. And it's interesting because years after Jesus passed his own testing atop that mountain with Satan, his apostle John wrote a warning that we can all benefit from even today. Go to 1 John 2 verse 12. 1 John 2, verse 12. We'll just look at another passage from one of Jesus' apostles. And we'll see what he has to say. So we've looked at Solomon. We've looked at Paul. We've looked at Jesus. What about John, another apostle? 1 John 2, verse 12. John wrote, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers. Because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men. And this is all perspective, right? 
because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If at any point someone sweeps their arm and says, you can have all this, do not take the bait. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and pride of life, that's not from Father, but is from the world. All these things, you see, that should echo back to what we just read about. All these things, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, those are the those are the eyes on earthly things. Those are the traps, the trappings there. From that perspective, verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Satan's plan is to keep we believers even as earthly-minded as possible for as long as we live. Keep your eyes on the things, you know, stay down here. Don't ever transcend descend stay down here on earth and be distracted by all the white noise and the garbage and blah 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 and turn your tv up and you know have it on in the background even if you're not even paying attention just give me a way somehow to keep your mind on earthly things let me let me scare you into place isn't that what's been going on lately let me scare you into an earthly minded perspective so that you don't even barely have time to think about the things of god don't purchase the lie. Don't invest in the world's economy. Don't spend your resources on acquiring any of its currency. That is creature credit up here on the board. Rather, seeing it all as truth. Behind every temptation is an invitation to merchandise in Satan's economy. That means trade. Behind every temptation. That's what it is. It's an invitation to come merchandise, to play, to invest in, to trade in Satan's economy. It's a bad investment. Solomon wrote an entire book about this. That's Ecclesiastes. And concluded, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1, 2, part B. We just noted that. Accept this wisdom coming to you right now from this pulpit. Accept this wisdom and save yourself a lot of trouble. Again, behind every temptation is an invitation to merchandise and Satan's economy. It's a bad investment. Also, I'd like to say this. Now, I want especially you less mature people. Uh, often it's the younger in the congregation, but not always. It, by definition, means when I say younger, I'm talking about even young in the faith. You don't have to be young in age to be young in the faith. So this part is for you. Nobody's going to take responsibility for you or how you choose to live your life. Okay? You're the one who God gave life to. You have a life. You have a soul. You have been given a spirit. Nobody's going to take responsibility for you or how you choose to, to live your life. Please get that through your head. I'm speaking contrary to minimally American 
uh, average American social thinking. Get that through your head. Repeat. Nobody's going to take responsibility for you or how you choose to live your life. If they do, listen, if they do, they are not your friend, even if your flesh likes it. Even if you're a lazy slob and your flesh is like, I don't mind at all. I just sit back here with my arms behind my head and I eat Doritos and flip channels. If they do that thing, if they say, I'll take care of you, I'll take your responsibility for you. You don't worry about any. That is not your friend. People that make excuses for you are agents of Satan himself. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says, not Pastor Ed, the Bible says that God holds each of us personally responsible for our own lives, for our own decisions. God holds each of us personally responsible for our own lives. One of the most irritating assaults that very often popped up on my TV screen when I had it was this idea that we stand as a community before God in such a way that personal responsibilities are now shared somehow. That's one of the most irritating things of all. This idea that we stand as part of a community before God in such a way that our personal responsibilities are now, you know, spread out. We can, we can, we can smear them across other people's laps. Even though God put our responsibilities squarely on our own lap, on our own lap alone, this lie that's perpetuated in the world now is that we get to spread that thing out into other people's laps. That's a lie from the pit of hell. While we are certainly called to live peaceably as a community and with graciousness help one another in times of need, nowhere in the Bible does it say that our personal responsibilities to the Lord are shared. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that our personal, when the buck stops, that our personal responsibilities to the Lord are shared. Let me give you a familiar verse to help drive this home. Up here on the board, Luke 12, 48, part B in the Amplified. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. What do you call that? Personal responsibility. Doesn't say anything other than you are personally responsible for from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him personally, they will ask all the more. There's no skirting the issue. Again, nowhere in the Bible does it say that our personal responsibilities to the Lord are shared. Get that out of your head. It's a cancer. That's a worldly viewpoint that erodes the primitive fabric of God's will for us as individuals. Case in point, there are a lot of people in this world that believe since they are a part of a religious organization or a church, that by the righteousness, the so-called righteousness, of the organization, by that, they're going to heaven. In other words, their membership grants them a trip to heaven. A lot of people think that. Well, I'm a member of this church, I'm gone. In fact, the largest religion in this particular area of North Christian Church 
states in their catechism that one must be a member of their church in order to even be saved. One must be a member of their church in order to be saved. Not only is this terribly wrong, it also produces a false sense of security in members of that church. So this is what I mean by the danger of shared personal responsibility, this idea, this false doctrine of shared personal responsibility. It's an unholy doctrine, or as Paul wrote, a doctrine of demons. Go to 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. This, my friends, is part of seeing it all as truth. You understand? It's part of seeing it all as truth. And for whatever reason, the Spirit's bringing it up because some of you need to hear it. But it's an unholy doctrine. It's a doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings or doctrines of demons. Again, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings or doctrines of demons. So let me ask you a question. You ready? And I know you're sick of it, but I don't care. Honestly, what kind of doctrines do you think come out of your television? What kind of doctrines do you think come out of your television? I'll leave it at that. Suffice to repeat our previous principle up here on the board, seeing it all as, actually, I don't have it. I'll just read it again. Seeing it all as truth behind every temptation is an invitation to merchandise in Satan's economy. It's a bad investment. Solomon wrote an entire book about this, Ecclesiastes, and concluded, you know what? All is vanity. So please accept this wisdom and save yourself a lot of trouble. So what's the Spirit been getting at? The Spirit's been encouraging us to invest in God's economy. Invest in God's economy. That is to seek grace. Go to Matthew 6, 33. Matthew 6, verse 33. Again, this is what the Spirit's been encouraging in us to invest in God's economy. That is, plainly, to seek grace. Matthew 6, 33 reads very clearly, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you see the visual here? But seek first the kingdom of God. Think about the sweeping hands of Satan and Solomon as they considered the things of this world. And then think about how the Spirit has guided our attention to keeping our eyes fixed transcendentally on the things above, that which are heavenly. And then look at Jesus' words here. Again, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Spirit is saying, after 79 parts in this series titled, The Lord is Our Confidence, that while the key to the spiritual life is humility, that's been coming from this pulpit forever, the key to sanctification is God's grace in receiving it, you see? 
Here's the principle the Spirit gave us last time up here on the board. God owns our success. God owns our success. God never asks his children to do something without first equipping them for success by grace. Our job is to humbly submit to him. And as you see on the board, as a friendly reminder, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is also submitting to him. That is part of God's success that we would even be, that would we even do that for each other. But the key point here on the board is that God owns our success. God never asks his children to do something without first equipping them for success by grace. Our job is to humbly submit to him. Again, while the key to the spiritual life is humility, the key to sanctification is God's grace. This is why we ought to have supreme confidence in this life, in time even. This is why it cannot and will not ever be derived from anything under the sweeping arm of Satan, regardless of what he promises. He is a liar and the father of lies. There's no truth in him. That's what the Bible says. So here's a capstone principle from this series up here on the board, equipped for success with the word of God. We are equipped for success by, the, by grace through faith. With the word of God, we are equipped for success by grace through faith. Remember, God owns our success, and he never asks us to do something that he hasn't first equipped us to do by grace. The word, with the word of God, we are equipped for success by grace through faith. Our confidence rests on the power of the word and the spirit in us, not in earthly things. This is what it means to abide in God's economy of grace. This is what it means to be equipped for success. It means to abide in God's economy, <laughs> where, the, where the currency is grace. So we seek first all these things. We seek his grace. Again, with the word of God, we are equipped for success by grace through faith. Our confidence rests on the power of the word and the spirit in us, not in earthly things. This is what it means to abide in God's economy of grace. Another way of saying essentially the same thing up here on the board, again, back to God owns our success. God's word never comes up shy of its purposes. That's Isaiah 55, 11. This means that when the word is implanted into our soul, it is guaranteed to be effective. Because of this fact, we are held personally responsible to the truth. Now, I need you to concentrate for a moment. If God owns our success, and he does, in humility, what ought we do? If God owns our success... In humility, what ought we do? Simple. We hand our entire life over to God. Reminds me of Romans 12. We hand our entire life over to God. If God owns our success, what, are we, what should we do? We hand our entire life over to God. Did you hear what I just said? If God owns our success in humility, we ought to hand our entire lives over to God. We are not to play that little game 
we like to play where we, you know, hand over a part of our lives to him, but keep the rest for ourselves and are frolicking in this world? We are not to invest our precious resources, beginning with ourselves, in the world's economy. This thing called life, you know what? It's precious to God. Precious enough for him to send our Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's how precious life is to him. Our personal lives were important enough to God for him to save us. And when Jesus was up on that cross that day, you know what? You, my friend, were on his heart personally. How's this for success? God saved you. How about that for success? God saved you. How? By grace. Hmm. If you trust him with your eternal being, then you ought to trust him in time, right? That's the point. All by grace. Again, in humility, we ought to hand our entire life over to God. This, as I was, as I was writing this, um, I was thinking about one of my all-time favorite songs. It's a song titled uh, You Say by Lauren Daigle. And I know most of you know it, but here's an excerpt that made me, that this message made me think of up here on the board, You Say by Lauren Daigle. Taking all I have, and now I'm laying it at your feet. Didn't I just teach you that? Didn't God the Holy Spirit just say that to you? Don't ask me to sing it. <laughs> Go listen to the song. But this is what the Spirit's saying. Taking all I have, and now I'm laying it at your feet. Your entire life. If this is God's, if, if our life or God owns our success, then we're to give our entire life to him. Taking all I have and now I'm laying it at your feet. You'll have every failure, God. You'll have every victory. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. You say I am held when I am falling short. When I don't belong, oh, you say I am yours. And then she finishes, and I believe, oh, I believe, what you say of me, I believe. Sounds like confidence to me. What a beautiful song that is. Again, the first verse was, taking all I have, and now I'm laying it at your feet. You'll have every failure, God. You'll have every victory. That's the right attitude, my friends. I want to end with some holy scripture on this as we come to what is apparently the end of this long series on the Lord is our confidence. Up here on the board, one last time, Proverbs 14, 26 to 27 in the Amplified. In the reverent fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will always have a place of refuge. The reverent fear of the Lord that leads to obedience and worship is a fountain of life so that one may avoid the snares of death. You know, I really think this one passage says it all. 
We know from our previous studies that the beginning of wisdom is to acquire it. The Bible also says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And now here with this passage, the Holy Spirit has pulled it all together for us. So my friends, I beg you to receive this grace from God. There's nothing sweeter than the word of truth. Nothing is able to give you more confidence in this life. And nothing is able to deliver on its promises the way it can. So take it in as often as you can. Love it for what it is, truth that sets you free. Live it each and every moment of each and every day. And my friends, you will have that peace that Jesus himself has promised you. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here. In this moment in time, Father, a time that you set aside from eternity past, that you ordained for our sanctification, Father, by grace through faith. Father, may we receive it for all that it is, an expression of your wondrous love. Father, we do just ask for your blessings on this, what we've received here and on our thoughts and our hearts, Father, as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, Father, back to our homes, and then, of course, your will be done out to a world that needs the truth so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.